Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. This is Zach Shiner, and today we get to talk about something that I've actually wanted to do this one for a long time. We're going to talk about trauma in ECMO. And I've got with me Paul Agerwick. Paul, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Paul, tell us about yourself. Where are you, where are you hailing from? Well, I'm uh, working in Tromsø, Norway, which is, uh, I think, the northernmost university hospital in the world. I'm an anesthesia resident, and um, I have a keen interest in ECMO. Yeah, and you taught at our last Reanimate, uh, and you have... Uh, done a lot of stuff with ECMO. You've gone to the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. You've gone to Paris and done pre-hospital ECMO with Lionel. Um, yeah. You you are the man. He is actually the conference organizer for a conference called Big Sick 18. It's coming up this uh, February in Switzerland. Check it out at bigsick18.org. And I will be there. We'll have uh, Lionel is there. A lot of great speakers are, are going to be there. <laughs> well, um... It's all, um, I guess, thanks to you guys. I've uh, been able to keep this interest alive um, at some level. So, but um, but thanks for the for the high praise. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to talk trauma, and Paul actually did uh, the trauma section for us at Reanimate, our last Reanimate, and a lot of stuff has grown out of this. And so I wanted to kind of capture this. We're also going to play a little bit of a of a, a snippets from a guy by the name of Larson. Tell us about Magnus Larson, Paul. Yeah, so Magnus is the chief of pediatric cardiothoracic surgery at Karolinska Hospital in Sweden. And he told me about this really interesting case where they utilized ECMO to uh, save a patient that would be otherwise completely, would have bled out. And I think um, that really got me interested. And so I tried to learn more about it and see what they'd done um, in terms of research. And um, I interviewed him when I was there last year. Yeah, and we've been trying to get this piece out. But I think that there's there's a little bit to, to explore even before we get into Magnus, because when we start talking about ECMO and trauma, I, I just have this inerrant sense of frustration, because I think that the, the terms get lost in, in, in what we're specifically dealing with, because so much of the previous literature in trauma is about VV ECMO. It's about ARDS. It's about things that, uh, well, first of all, don't really involve the emergency room or kind of the acute resuscitative strategy. But they're things that make sense, right? From, from, from ARDS, we know in the non-trauma literature, we, the CSER trial and the ANZ ECMO trial have given us some, some at least idea that this this technology may be able to be utilized for these patients. But what I'm interested in today is the crashing patient, the guy who's got a blown out left ventricle, the the, the blunt traumatic arrest, the shocky patient from, from hemorrhage. Does ECMO work for those patients? Paul, what do you think? When I um, first started asking these questions, there was a unanimous opinion among some consultants that you know, ECMO is contraindicated in trauma and doesn't do anything good at all. And uh, like you said, the VV ECMO use in the the more long-term problems that lung contusions and other type of pathologies make have been used since the 70s to, to kind of help with that. And uh, using 
VA ECMO to improve physiology in the hemorrhagic shock patient to me seemed um, like something that you just didn't even really talk about until I met um, the guys from Sweden who kind of have explored this and had some experience with it. And I really do think if you look at the ECMO as a machine that can solve physiological problems, it does have some um, tantalizing effects on on the hemorrhagic shock patient as well. Cool. All right, so let's listen to a little bit of what Magnus is going to talk about, and it'll lead us down a whole series of things which I think are, are amazing and interesting in how ECMO can deal with trauma. So here we go. You told me about a case that you had that made you kind of think in the direction that ECMO could be a valuable tool in trauma. Can you tell me about that? Of course. This was a 12-year-old girl coming in, uh, I think, about 10 years ago, and uh, there was a bad accident. She was really afraid of dogs, and the neighbor's dog got loose into their garden, so she ran into the street, and then she got hit by a truck. Uh, when she came to us, she had the injuries in the, her head, in the thorax with the bilateral uh, pulmonary contusions, uh, liver bleedings, uh, spleen injury, uh, pelvic fractures, bilateral femur fractures. She had a pH of less than seven. Uh, she had a body temperature about 32 degrees, I think it was. And uh, she was in a really bad uh, condition, very coagulopathic. Uh, so the problem was uh, the, the fractures were stabilized and the, the abdomen was, of course, opened and uh, damage control surgery was performed, but she still continued to bleed from the liver. It was very obvious that she was very coagulopathic and there was no... We, we, I think she got almost 50 liters of uh, blood products uh, during the resuscitation and during the following night. And in the early morning, uh, this girl developed uh, trauma-associated lung inflow, sorry, transfusion-associated lung injury, and uh, she needed a VA ECMO. And then uh, when she was put on VA ECMO, they cannulated uh, from the groin, I think, uh, right groin, she suddenly stopped to bleed. And that made us actually wonder what actually did happen. Why did the liver bleeding cease uh, spontaneously when she was put on ECMO? So then we had some of uh, a couple of hypotheses that we wanted to test and that was actually the start of my PhD project. So um, you were telling your PhD was consistent about uh, um, consisted of about three projects? Four projects. Four, four projects. But um, I thought we'd talk about two of them now. Um, can you tell me about the um, uh, hypotensive shock part where you where you investigated very severely hypotensive rabbits? Yeah, uh, that was actually our uh, our last uh, study. We had four animal studies: two of them with with rabbits and two of them with pigs. Uh, the one you asked about was actually, we, we wanted to see what actually happened to uh, the coagulation system when you put uh, uh, a rabbit in near lethal bleeding on ECMO. So we had two groups of rabbits. Uh, they were initially treated the same. They had bilateral femur fractures. They were bled of 45% of their blood volume. Uh, then um, uh, 
and we'll let them be in the, uh, deterioration for 90 minutes. Uh, after these 90 minutes, uh, we started to resuscitate them. Uh, the goal was to get below 32 degrees Celsius and below pH of 7. Uh, and then we could see on the rotund curve that they were in a coagulopathic state. So half of the rabbits, five of them, got uh, a, a sort of state-of-the-art treatment, like resuscitation with warm blood and uh, warm blankets and passive rewarming. Um, and uh, the other ones got the same, but also on top of that, vein arterial ECMO for 60 minutes. And after... Uh, when we were done after 60 minutes, we, we compared these rabbits with each other. And uh, there was obvious that we could see, first of all, of course, that the arterial pressure went up. That's not rocket science, but uh, of course, that the mean arterial pressure uh, went up. Uh, and uh, also the temperature was really efficiently uh, increasing. We could see that the pH was moving upwards above seven in the ECMO group, and, but it kept below seven in the, in the control group. Um, uh, that was fairly uh, a bit, bit later to, uh, that we could see the, the pH reaction. And of course, we just had the resuscitation for 60 minutes. Our goal was to see what happened during the first, sort of say, golden hour with ECMO. But uh, looking retrospectively, we, maybe we should have continued for a couple of hours. But still, that was, that's what we did. And then we also could see that testing the blood for coagulation when we did in vitro, sorry, in vivo testing, we could see by cutting the rabbit's ears and cutting their cuticles that the bleeding ceased much, much faster in the ECMO group. And this we can also control with Rotem, where we had the clot formation time that was significantly lower in the, um, in the ECMO group. Uh, but uh, still, the, the clot uh, stability was not better in the ECMO group. And we, we could also correlate that with the very low fib fibrinian levels. So I think that we didn't give the rabbits any fibrinian, etc. So, so, I mean, ECMO can be one tool, I think, in, in controlling lethally bleeding uh, species uh, and, and also improve the coagulation system. Of course, it's not the only solution, but it may be a part of, of a trauma resuscitation. All right, so a lot to unpack there, Paul. I mean, that, that's some great stuff. Um, Magnus did the research and did it in rabbits, and, and you got to interview him. Um, I think the first thing that we should talk about is sort of the idea of what is damage control surgery, because I think maybe not all the listeners really understand what that is. Do you want to have just a brief comment on what that is? Yeah, I, um, I'm obviously also um, not a surgeon, but um, the main principles of damage control surgery is to um, basically solve the, the bleeding problem of a patient in trauma, and it um, is... Um, I would say uh, a, a pleiothora of techniques that aim to control the source of the bleeding after an ATLS examination. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think damage control resuscitation can kind of break it into a couple of parts, and that is moving away from doing this massive operation when someone comes in in hemorrhagic shock and moving more mm -hmm. to the like just plug the big holes 
and then let's make sure that their their physiology, their blood, is to a point where they can actually clot because um, we can take them back later, we can correct some of these like, you know, little bleeders later, but let's get in, pack the big things, put them in the ICU, and then normalize their blood. Because in when you start bleeding a lot, and when you start getting transfused a lot, you tend to be coagulopathic, and that is a change. That And I think this has kind of moved out of the recent wars we've had, where they've realized that if they just go in and transfuse a bunch of blood, patients don't do very well. So let's change the mindset. Let's try and get them to the OR to stop the aortic injury or the cardiac injury, pack them with a bunch of gauze, put them in the ICU, and then using Rotem or you can use like typical PTINR, which is probably not quite as good, but to try and get their coagulation status better. And this mm -hmm. is where it really pulls in what Magnus just said. He talked about, you know, do, how do we correct coagulopathy of trauma? And he mentioned some things with ECMO. Yeah. And I think, like you're saying, it, it turns into this issue that without good um, hemorrhagic control, you lose the control of the, the hematological system as well. And, and it all kind of unravels on you. And you need to normalize all aspects of the physiology to be able to save the patient. And what Magnus I think is um, looking into is extremely interesting because he's looking into, um, I mean, we've been used to looking at ECMO as a device to replace heart or lung function or both. And this just kind of dives into the whole rest of the body um, on physiology. And it turns out he has some pretty, I think, compelling results from his animal trials in, in that regard. Yeah. So, and I'll put these all in the show notes. I've actually got a, quite a few studies for the show notes for this. But um, he showed that these patients, you know, these rabbits at least bleed less. And when we think about the physiology here, specifically we're looking at a few things, like in this vicious circle of coagulopathy for trauma includes the dilution of coagulation factors, the, mm -hmm. the improvement of your acidosis, and the warming of the patient. So cold blood doesn't, doesn't uh, clot as well. And so ECMO can do all of those things. You can rapidly transfuse coagulation factors if you need it. You can improve their pH simply by, uh, you know, transfusions and, and improving their volume status. And then warming the blood is very easy with ECMO. So at least from mm -hmm. a theoretic standpoint, hemorrhagic shock and trauma could be better. Yeah, and uh, it just really matches well uh, with the data that Magnus has found that if you put a rabbit on ECMO in addition to doing the regular stuff, it just improves everything. If you want a warm patient and um, patient with better hemorrhagic control in terms of factors like coagulation stuff, and also a, a way to deliver stupendous amount of, of, of factors and and products for um, for the resuscitation, ECMO gives you all of those. Okay, so we've got rabbits. We bleed them. We can show that all these factors improve, their pH improves, their bleeding times decrease, um, a bunch of things. Can that translate to humans? And this is where things get a little bit more dicey. One of the questions that I think is really interesting in this is that in most circuits we are using heparin. And heparin would seem to be like something you would not want to give to a trauma patient. Well, um, I'm become more ambivalent on that issue because um, Magnus's research looks into using 
alternative and novel anticoagulation factors that are not yet available for us, um, like factor 11 inhibitor, which seems to do the same job as heparin, but it doesn't really make surgical bleeding worse. But there have been a lot of um, trials where they put people on an hepar- a heparinized circuit, but not heparinizing the patient. And I think um, data from Sweden at least supports doing that for, for sometimes longer periods of time. And it doesn't really affect the clotting of the patient. So if you have a bleeding problem, you can safely leave out the heparin for the patient for as long as that may be necessary. Even a German case report where they um, had a patient with a TBI, where they also didn't heparinize the patient and put him on ECMO, heparinized um, tubing, and um, he was fine. I mean, they don't really clot on the arterial side from that. So I think that's interesting. I think maybe we should be uh, not so afraid of not heparinizing the patients when it comes to trauma. I don't think that's a bad thing. So I actually agree with you. Uh, I think that this that the heparinization of the circuit is great if you're a medical patient, but not necessary if you have a, a trauma patient. Now there's a lot of trials, and I'll put it. There's this great meta analysis on on ECMO and trauma, and and quite a few studies are not using heparin at all, and they're just mm-hmm. running the circuit uh, without. With we have heparin lined uh, cannulas and circuits, but, but other than that, no systemic anticoagulation. And these patients are doing quite well. The other possibility is that they're running it at a lower ACT. We sometimes say like 180 seconds is maybe what we need, but but by putting that ACT lower, you have some you know compromise between the two states. Yeah, I think it's also important just to just for for all the people who are not used to um, different types of heparinization. I mean, all the new heparin circuits, the, the tubing, the cannulas the stuff that's outside of the patient, all that stuff has got heparin coating on it now. And that kind of prevents a lot of the clotting in the system. But I just wanted to make sure that there is a clear line between the heparinized system components and actually heparinizing the patient in addition to that, which is what we would do if you had to have a cardiac arrest of a medical pathogenesis or something. Yeah. So when we when I talked to some of the guys from Karolinska, they, I mean, they talk about how bleeding is not really their enemy on these patients, that they will transfuse. I mean, I think they said 120 units, 150 units on some of these patients in trauma, and I think you witnessed this. Is this right? Yeah. Um, so uh, Magnus looked at all the trauma patients at the Karolinska Institute uh, that were put on ECMO from 2000, I think, 2002 and to, to 2011. And then I looked at the patients from 2011 until 2016, we did like a chart review on, on those patients and a lot of product is being given, up to 300 units of blood. Wow. And they have, they have no real, you know, uh, conservative uh, approach to that. The patient gets what the patient needs. So, okay, so that's great. We started talking about coagulation. We started talking about how maybe damage control surgery. Still, these patients are kind of the sub-acute patient, right? They're like the patient that, that maybe went to the operating theater or operating room, got put on ECMO somewhere in that line. I want to start talking about like really, like in the emergency room, in the trauma bay, do we start putting these patients on ECMO? And I think there's some literature, even just in the last couple months, that has started pushing this farther and farther. We've got uh, a... a um, this case report that just came out where a blunt cardiac arrest got put on ECMO 
and survived. We've got this, this other um, paper that showed eight separate ruptured cardiac chambers where patients were getting put on VA ECMO and, uh, and then end up having you know, de reasonable outcomes, much better than you would expect from someone who just had a, a, you know, a left ventricle explosion. What are your thoughts on those patients? Well, I totally agree. I think um, from being, I mean, I think the first patient that was put on ECMO by by way of trauma was in back in the 70s, which was the result of a lung contusion on day three. And since that, it's always been, you know, the concern with the heparinization and all that we, that we just covered. I think now, uh, and also with support from Magnus's research, where you put people that have just been exposed to a trauma on ECMO right away, it just gives you all kind of goodness towards correcting the patient's physiology. And I think I think this is a real uh, novel territory that we're getting into. And I think as we are trying to solve the physiological problems of these patients, um, it's going to feel more natural to put them on ECMO to see if uh, it gives them the little edge that they need to get over the coagulopathy and the, the triad of death with coagulopathy, temperature, and uh, hemorrhagic shock. Yeah. And, and I think there's, there's actually some literature to, to back us up on this as well, because when you start looking at the trauma patients who do die from mm -hmm. when they're on ECMO, they actually don't die of bleeding, or at least the, the levels are low. I think they said after 1995, meaning after we started getting some of these new circuits, the rate of bleeding as the cause of death from patients that are on ECMO uh, is less than 15%, which is seemingly on these super sick trauma patients to be relatively low clearly not double blind placebo controlled trial but um, gives us some pause to say hey maybe actually putting them on ECMO will improve their rates of bleeding will decrease their chance of having to get or as that the being the cause of their death yeah I agree I think I think also if you think of this in a way of that there's a system in place for handling trauma patients right now ECMO is not really a part of that. So introducing that on the fly in the emergency room and a really sick trauma patient comes in, I think thinking that thought is a major leap cognitively for uh, a lot of people. And um, I think as, as the literature will keep coming out, it's going to make it easier to kind of include more people that would benefit and even earlier. In the patient material that I looked at, from uh, which has not been published yet, uh, from the Karolinska, they all got put on ECMO because it was a particular problem pertaining to the circulation or the ventilation issues of that particular patient, which was usually a young, uh, you know, all-in patient where you just wanted to do everything. And although the numbers in terms of survival are not that good, most of them uh, had quite uh, extensive ICU stays and um, um, or some had long ICU stays, but um, consistent with other ECMO data, if the patient wasn't going to survive, they had short ICU stays. So it, I don't think it's going to be a major impact towards uh, giving patients worse outcome. So, Paul, one of the things that I think is, is interesting in this as well, and you and I have talked about this before, is the idea of decreasing the pressures, that ECMO would actually improve bleeding, not from a coagulation standpoint, but from decreasing the pressures uh, inside the venous and potentially even arterial system. Do you believe that? Well, um, well, I certainly believe it decreases the pressure in the ven on the venous side. Mm -hmm. The circuit is sucking at a rate of, uh, you know, it tries to move uh, anywhere from two to five liters of blood 
through the system and it removes that blood from the cava and that decreases the pressure. And depending on your cannula size, you're going to have a lot of negative pressure on that side. So I think, I think it certainly decreases the pressures on the weakness side. And decreasing the arterial side pressures, I, I find that a little harder to believe in the sense that you're, that's where you're putting the blood back. But I also kind of think that if you are able to combine this with other types of um, technologies, um, either IR or conventional damage control surgical techniques, I think you can certainly give the patient a bridge to cross over on to a safe terrain on the other side of the ICU stay, I think. Yeah, and, and Magnus mentioned this part a little bit in, in, when he, in his discussion, is that in, in maybe not even with the current technology, but if you improve the technology, you could actually bypass wherever the bleeding is. Yeah. You, you could just take a, you could have your ECMO circuit set up so that if you have a bad liver injury, you go around it and you make the pressures in that liver in, uh, much, much less than they would be physiologically. I think, I think because of the vicinity to the, of the liver to the cava system, I think um, in its own right, using an ECMO in severe hepatic injuries makes a lot of sense because it's going to absolutely uh, dry up the venous beds of the, of the, of the liver uh, just because it's so close. But yeah, I think, I, think, I think too that you could expect technology to come along that would allow you to place cannulas with great precision at uh, the point where you need, it, need them to be. Yeah, and I think this this does bring up a good point that needs to be mentioned because when we're when we're actually talking about some of these blunt cardiac arrests, we're talking about even more invasive um, procedures than just typical um, femoral femoral VA ECMO. We're talking about putting cannulas up near the aorta. We're talking about true cardiopulmonary bypass. So so yeah, there are there are ways that maybe that that the acute trauma patient would benefit from not just our typical VA femoral cannulation uh, idea. Yeah, and I, from, from the material that I've looked at, at in Sweden, there has been some trouble with the cannulation with regards to the injury, the mechanism of injury. And, um, you know, if you have hurt your right thigh really bad, you're going to have trouble cannulating the right groin. So you should go on the left side and stuff like that. It's going to need probably a little bit more of practice or even central cannulation, which you mentioned. Yeah, and, and I think that is a good point, Paul, because you do have to be concerned about whether you have a proximal caval injury. Granted, if they do have that, they're probably dead anyway, but if you're putting a, a venous cannula up and you actually transect the, the vein, that would obviously be no good for the patient. No. There's one more thing here that's with the uh, intracranial hemorrhage. We've, we've thought for years, hey, this would be an absolute contraindication, right? Heparinization of the circuit, oh, someone's got a bleed in their brain, do we do ECMO on them when they're also polytrauma? And, God, there's, this, there's a recent uh, meta-analysis on this as well that showed that these patients actually do fairly well when they get on, on, on ECMO and that their survival was, it was somewhere, you know, between 40 and 60% of these patients are surviving and the ones that are dying are actually not dying of bleeding in their brain. They're dying of either they're you know, brain dead before or they've had other complications from the polytrauma. So what are your thoughts on polytrauma, intracranial hemorrhage? Is that a contraindication for ECMO? Well, my best estimate from looking at the literature is no. I think I totally agree with you. I think, I think um, the ECMO is still a tool for improving physiology 
in general, and it doesn't seem to be that bad for people even who have suffered um, traumatic brain injury, I think. Oh, so good. Okay, last thing here. We've got to, we've got to throw in Sam Tisherman. We've got to throw in suspended animation and emergency preservation resuscitation where, uh, you know, Sam has been working on this for forever. This is the true science fiction, Star Trek, you know, space age uh, use of ECMO where they're taking patients that are in traumatic arrest um, in Baltimore, it used to be Pittsburgh, now Baltimore, and cooling them down to like 10 degrees Celsius with the ECMO cannulation. Um, I was in Baltimore just a few months ago, and I actually was there and spoke with the with some of the people who did their first case. So they they've done at least one case, and I think they've um, you know it's been approved. It's all in sight. In sight, they had to do a massive community effort to get to patients if they wanted to to opt out of this. But the idea is that on traumatic arrest who have a survival of basically zero, can we suspend them? Can we put them in a hibernation, true hibernation state where we cool them to a temperature where their metabolism is so low that they can survive and then take them to the operating room and figure out what's wrong with them? Yeah, that sounds... But I have to agree with the sentiment that it sounds also a little bit of science fiction to me right now. I think, you know, that far down in temperature... It's going to be interesting to see what kind of data they get from that with regards to other type of hypothermic injuries that we might and might or might not see in relation to that. But I, but I really think that sounds extremely interesting. Yeah, I mean, Sam Sam did a bunch of data with dogs, and uh, the data was pretty compelling. I mean, they could they could cool them down, and they could they could have them for several hours in this state while they went in and fixed whatever they they destroyed and then warm them back up and uh, and see what happens. So, it's, I mean, it's kind of the same as these, you know, cardiac cases where, or bypass surgery where they'll, they'll you know, stop the heart, cool the chest uh, and see, and then warm them back up. Clearly this, the problem with this one is that they are dead before they start cooling. So you need something that can rapidly cool them and ECMO is currently the best technology to do that. Yeah, and it's certainly um, breaking new ground in terms of in terms of thinking around the problem that's been there forever, and nobody really has come up with a great solution for it. All right, Paul, we talk trauma. We let's do some take homes. Take homes would be: Hey, trauma can fix coagulopathy of of trauma. We can use this in line with our damage control surgery. There's the idea that maybe decreasing the pressure in the venous system can can improve bleeding as well. We talked about ECMO and intracranial hemorrhage. There could be potentially benefit even in these cases that we think would be an absolute contraindication. We said that heparin, not absolutely necessary. Not absolutely necessary. We can run the circuit without it, uh, and there are several places doing that currently. And then finally, we talked about Sam Tisherman and his suspended animation and more data, probably not for several years, but we'll, this is the Star Trek of the future. Extremely interesting, yeah. Paul, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me.